podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your co-host, Andrew Menzel. My friends call me Menas. Joining me as ever is Paul, the summer game, Dennett, or should I call him Don Bradman, who has been putting out these great episodes on the Don. Paul, welcome to the podcast. You have to do it in a Bradman voice. Good morning, Menace. <laughs> How are you going? I'm, I'm going, well, yeah, it's been great fun. Um, while the rest of the world is dealing with all of the problems, that the very serious problems that are out there, I've been um, happily ensconced in 1928, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful time to be. Well, uh, yeah, if you missed it, go back because there's a fascinating episode that Paul produced that sort of documents how Bradman rose to prominence and, and made it into the Australian team. So that's the episode just before this one. Go back and find it. It's, I have to say, excellent work by Paul. He put loads of effort into it. And uh, so well done, Paul Dennett. So go back and get to that one. There'll be more coming in this episode of Cricket Unfiltered. We've got the cricket headlines, and surprisingly, there are a few, considering everything's there actually <laughs> are some. And then we're going to review episode two of the test, and then we're going to bring it home with Can't Let It Go. All right, well, let's start with the cricket headlines, Paul. And look, something that's very close to my heart is um, Dean Jones, the, the former Australian player. And, you know, controversially in the last week, he's handed back his VCA or Victorian Cricket Association life membership and asked, has asked for his name to be taken off the, the 50 over uh, award in, to, given out to a Victorian player. It's a, it's a troubling circumstance, really. I find it really sad. And I think that Dean Jones, you know, his whole career in some ways has been marked by strange moments like this. I remember when he was dropped from the Australian side he was made 12th man for the first Test match way back in, in 92-3. And he never played for Australia again in Test cricket. Yet he finished up with a, an average of, I think, 45 from uh, about 52 Test matches. And really, he should be talked about as one of the very best players to play for Australia. But, you know, if you'd asked me, name a side from the 80s and 90s, I probably would have forgotten to even consider him. That's, and then he got back into the side, into the one-day side, and quit. Uh, and so for him to sort of now suddenly be doing this with Victoria, it seems as though it's got something to do with his disappointment at not being get an op- getting an opportunity to coach a Big Bash franchise. And it does seem as though he has to do more than others to prove himself. But I think it's a great pity that he's done this because I think that the way that he was going, the success he was having in the Pakistan Super League, he wasn't that far away from coaching a, a Big Bash franchise at some stage, but maybe that's been put back further now. Yeah, a couple of points there I want to pick up on. Firstly, just talking about him, the player. I mean, I, I thought he had one of the most wonderful, languid, silky batting techniques I've ever seen. And like you alluded to there, he may have been dropped prematurely from the test side. I, I never really sort of got over it. I always thought they robbed him of, you know, 30 or 40 more tests. So certainly there was... 
you know, whispers and murmurs that behind the scenes he could be a bit prickly. And yeah, I, 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 look, there's probably more than just cricket that went into his axing from the side. But, you know, what's happened now seems to be a result of, you know, Michael Klinger being given the job to coach the Renegades in the Big Bash. And I know uh, Dino applied for that job as well. And I can see his disappointment. I absolutely 100% can understand why he's done what he's, he's done. He's a legend of Victorian cricket. He was captain of the state. Um, he was a, I don't want to say a far better player than Michael Clinton because I think that's denigrating his career. But I think you could say quite justifiably that Dino is way more qualified for the job of the Renegades coach just on what he's done in the PSL. You put that together that he's a Victorian legend. I mean, I think it's a huge oversight, a massive misstep by Victorian cricket. And I think Dean Jones has done absolutely the right thing. And I know, Paul, this is not new for me. I've been saying on the show for a good few years, Dean Jones should be com- uh, coaching in the Big Bash. He could be commentating as well, but he should be coaching. And, and Robert Craddock said the same to Jared Waitley uh, on Monday on the radio that, you know, we need a voice like Dino's that's a bit different. Yeah, I mean, I can understand your point of view and maybe one day he will get a job coaching in the Big Bash and he may well be rather successful. I can also understand uh, a reluctance to appoint him because he does seem to be a polarising figure. That uh, left field attitude that Crash talked about is great, but sometimes that's not what you need as a coach. That's maybe sometimes better, someone sort of from the sidelines saying that. And if he was to become the coach, maybe half the players would love him and there'd be a few players that he wouldn't get on so well with. So I think he will come to regret having taken his name off these trophies in the same way that he must surely have regretted in 94 or wherever it was when he was back in the Australian one-day side, suddenly retiring um, from international cricket in anger. And then he went on and I think he got a triple century for Victoria not much, lo- not much later. He must regret that. And I think he'll come to regret this. I think it's really sad. I think someone should have talked him out of doing it. Yeah, well, I think the administrators should just have some guts and give him a job because I know you, you think he might be polarizing. I think that makes him interesting. And, you know, Craddock gave a really good example that when he had him on his TV show, just before they won on, won on air, Dino floated the idea that Travis Head should move from South Australia to New South Wales to get amongst it, you know, where it's really competitive and um, would be good for his career playing on spinning wickets and Crash said he'd never heard anybody else say that. So oh, I think we're just really missing out on a valuable resource. And I, 200% see why he's pissed off. You know, since the dropping to now, he seems like he's a pariah in Australian cricket. And, uh, yeah, it just it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, but I think his chances of coaching the Big Bash that much more remote. And I think that, yeah, he has had to do more than others. But maybe if he had another couple of seasons of success at the Pakistan Super League, he would have got a job in the Big Bash. And so I, I, I can see why he's done this. I just think it's sad and I think he will come to regret it. All right, now, not really a headline, but the next bit of news, I sat on a Zoom conference call with Pat Cummins last week. And look, he made some in, you know, lots of interesting points in it. I'm going to touch on a few of them. Well, firstly, I'll give you the, his player update since the coronavirus lockdown. As Adam Zampers unfortunately had to delay his wedding. Uh, David Warner has a huge home gym, apparently. And Justin Langer's been showing off in the group chat by sending messages after he does 16-kilometre <laughs> runs. Uh, so no surprises there. Well, did you go on a 16-kilometre run today, Paul? I think I might have gone... I might have run a total of 16 kilometres since the year 2000. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, look, some of the more, um, I guess, two two things that stood out for me. Firstly, he, he said that, you know, the players 
fought really hard to be partners with Cricket Australia in the game in a revenue share agreement and therefore they just have to accept that their salaries are going to take a hit because of the economic situation. So, And he made the point, you know, you can't have it both ways, it's, you know, which is, you know, a fair point. Yeah, it's a fair point. And then the other thing that I asked him about was thoughts about captaining Australia down the track. And he said he thinks it's a moot point because Tim Payne's doing such a wonderful job and Aaron Finch is doing a really good job. So he hasn't really thought about it. But when I I asked him if he would like to at least try captaincy at a state level and you know, and I said to him, and I'll say now, Peter Neville's doing a great job at New South Wales, but I've been at a couple of games where Pat Cummins has played for New South Wales, and as good a job as Neville's doing, I think Cummins should be captaining those matches. So at least we know, can he do it? Can he bowl a fierce spell and still captain the side, or is it too much? He doesn't even know. How do we know if he doesn't know? It's a really interesting point that it, it comes to that whole point of, what is the Sheffield Shield for? You know, if it's meant to be just an organic competition in and of itself, then New South Wales have every entitlement to say, no, we want Peter Neville to be the captain because that's the best in the best interests of our state. But for, from the national point of view, there's that higher level of importance. So, yeah, I, I think it would be right for him to have a, a couple of games in charge when he's next playing for New South Wales. He did also mention that the players were thinking about the T20 World Cup in October, November, that, you know, that is, has been a big thing on their horizon. So they were all obviously concerned about that, not more concerned than the broader issues, but, you know, a big part of their planning. And I think we're all sort of thinking now that hard to see that being completely unaffected. It's hard to see that going ahead. I just think even with the best possible outcome, uh, maybe Australian society by then could be starting to return to normality, I just find it hard to see us having um, open borders with with all the countries of the world. So as I've said many times, you make a prediction at the moment, a week later you look foolish. So who knows what it'll be, but at this stage I can't see that. And the last question was someone asked him, and it's an interesting one, but whether players will ever be able to put saliva on the ball again. So, you know, is there a market for some kind of uh, clean saliva, you know, you, saliva... COVID-tested saliva or something for ball? Well, it would be an interesting thing if they just said, okay, here's an opportunity to get rid of the whole ball tampering issue. You can't touch it. We'll give you a new ball every 40 overs if you want it. Uh, You can keep the old ball for the spinners and we'll go from there. It's not going to happen, but it would be interesting. Of course, they'll be able to use saliva again. It would not be a cricket unfiltered podcast if Paul Dennett didn't drop in a wildly left field (laughs) idea. All right, our next headline Stephen O'Keefe has been, well, he's been dropped from the New South Wales contract list and he's retired from first class cricket. I spoke to him with a few other journalists on a Zoom call again yesterday. And that's the way all these are going at the moment. He played nine tests and took 35 wickets at 29. Played 88 first-class matches. Took 301 wickets at an average of 24.66. Astonishing figures. His sort of playing regret is that his highest first-class score is 99. I'm really angry about this, and I I think it's a ridiculous decision from New South Wales. And I, I, I just can't understand their reasoning behind it. I mean... He was the—he was a really good bowler this season. He, what did he do? Leading wicket taker yeah. for every hitter in the country. He took sixteen wickets at twenty-two point three this season. He's got a first-class bowling average that's not only better than Nathan Lyons; it's better than Shane Warnes. And I know that we're not comparing apples with apples, but still, it, it is what it is. He's got a batting average of what was it, twenty-five or something like that? Um, 
Yep. Yeah, 25.6 is his batting average. And he's probably tapered off a little bit in batting in the last a little while, although he's still, I, I looked up, he's averaging uh, 17 or 18 or, or so in the last three seasons. The fact of the matter is this. Whomever made the decision to not give him a contract, if those people were picking a side for a, a shield game at the SCG starting tomorrow and they had to put their house on it, they'd pick Stephen O'Keefe in the side. Even if Nathan Lyon was available, they'd probably play both spinners. But especially if, as is often the case, Nathan Lyon isn't available, then of course they would pick him. So there's no justification for ripping up his contract. He's only 35. I mean, Brad Hogg played another 10 years at top-level cricket. Australia won't be going to Bangladesh as, as planned, but had we, be, had we been going to Bangladesh, in all honesty, I would have picked Steve O'Keefe. I'm probably biased because I really like him, but he would be my second spinner for that tour. That is now going to be something that the Australian selectors do not have the option to do. I don't think they were going to pick him, but he would have said in the years before Voges made his debut that he had no chance of playing for Australia in, in Test cricket. Strange things happen. We shouldn't be dispensing with a player of this quality from the Sheffield Shield at this stage. Oh, I think it's a ridiculous decision. And Cricket Australia should step in and say, no, you are offering him a contract. We're, we're taking over here and, and that's how it's going to be. I feel as strongly as you do. He himself said to me, he feels like he's been given out when he hasn't nicked one. And obviously he vehemently disagrees with the decision, but he has a lot of respect for Cricket New South Wales. Just a couple of points there from what you say. I mean, say Lyon broke a couple of fingers and was out all of next summer saying it went ahead. Yes. <laughs> Stephen O'Keefe is the bowler that could best come in and hold up an end and do a job and give the fast bowlers a rest. There's, there's no other spinner that could perform the same role. I'm sorry, but it's just not possible. And, and so I think that's a big mistake to take him out of the game. The other thing is, and Brad Hodge made this point on the Bowlology Report, that, you know, it's not only bad for the bowling stocks, it's bad for the batting stocks because yes. other developing batsmen need to face good spinners. And, and you have to say, Stephen O'Keefe is as smart as they come. He doesn't turn the ball a long way, but he's wily. He, he's, he's a master of varying his pace and line. And, and that's something that opposition, young opposition batsmen should be facing regularly. So when they get to international level, they face some good spinners. So, yeah, just a, a really odd, odd decision. Good on him for taking it so well. I wouldn't be. I'd have been spitting the dummy. I'd have been um, on the phone to Tasmania and um, heading off and doing everything I could. So they're lucky he's taken it in such good spirit because I think he's entitled to be very angry. Yeah, I guess um, he did say he couldn't see himself playing for another state, but he, he might look at T20 tournaments around the world. He is going to be playing for the Sixers. Uh, there is a, a, some rumours floating around that maybe this decision has been done because New South Wales are luring another spinner from another state, say an Ashton Agar or a Lloyd Pope. Uh, that's the whispers I'm hearing. So, yeah, look, maybe there's more to come in this story. He did have some crazy ideas, though, Socky. He thinks that states need to back the spinners more. They're not bowling early enough in innings. You know, to get them in the games, they should look at um, maybe scarifying the odd wicket or, or doing things differently to bring them into the game more. Yeah, well, I mean, sort of, it's not going to happen, but I can see where he's coming from. But just in terms of if they are going to bring Pope or Ashton Agar across, they're good players. And Ashton Agar is an especially good player and maybe Pope will become one. But at the moment, there's no comparison. If I had to, to choose who I want on the side, 
O'Keefe is miles better for red ball cricket. And then um, Stephen O'Keefe spoke briefly about his test career and he had that fantastic test match in Pune in 2017 where he took 12 for 70 to bowl Australia to a famous victory. And he says that in his darkest moments, he thinks he could have played 100 tests and at the moment he's just happy to have played nine. So I think that's a feeling that a lot of cricketers could identify with. But the, the interesting thing was about that 2017 series is he said one thing he learned that he didn't do well enough was after the first test, he didn't keep developing. He said the Indians adjusted to the way I was bowling, but I didn't make the counter adjustment. And he said that's the one thing he learned that you at test cricket, you always have to be adjusting and improving, even when, you, you know, you might have taken 12 for 70. Yeah, fair enough. It's, um, it's probably a good point. But it is sad to see that someone three years ago taking 12 wickets in a test match is now effectively being told he's not in the best 66 cricketers in the entire country. Yeah, it's a BS. And, uh, and, you know, what more can we say? I mean, it's an absolute howler of a decision. They've got this one wrong, Cricket New South Wales. There's no young spinners coming through to dislodge him. Uh, this, is, this is a shocker. All right. Now, next headline. The English Cricket Board have announced they're going to pay out about $120 million to help the the local cricket clubs stay afloat in England. And we touched on this last week, but they've alluded to now the 100 being in in, in huge doubt of going ahead this year at all. Yeah, it's good they're doing that. And it it just shows how at the moment Australian cricket has been so lucky that this has occurred effectively right at the start of the the off-season. So if it was right at the start of summer, then it would have been even more disastrous for cricket. And that's what it's going to be for cricket in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, our final cricket headline is that the organisers of the the Women's T20 World Cup released a swathe of of, um, astonishing figures surrounding the tournament. The ones that stood out to me were the digital highlights figures. So 1.1 billion total video views on the ICC digital channels. And this is for a women's cricket event, 1.1 billion views. That figure was 20 times more than the video views delivered in the previous tournament. And they had 81.5 million engagements across their social media platforms for the tournament. Anything else stand out to you, Paul? Oh, I think all these figures do confirm that the tournament was a great success, that the 86,000 at the final was magnificent and a landmark day for women's sport. Nine million television views in India, which is wonderful. It slightly annoys me that for, for the men's tournaments, they allow this hyperinflation that, you know, they're talking about when India played Pakistan in the in the World Cup a few years back, that there would have been an audience of 1.5 billion or whatever watching it in the world. And it just wouldn't have been that big. So maybe the um, the ICC here could have gone a bit crazier and just made up a figure like everyone else seems to say, 500 million watched it, no one's going to know. No, I think that the overall crowd of being 136,000 for the tournament, so we had 86,000 for the final and only 50,000 for the rest of the tournament, that I think shows that maybe they could have advertised some of the, particularly the Australian games, a little bit more for you know the earlier matches in the tournament. I think of that first Australia-India game that was at the Sydney showground. They still got an excellent crowd. I mean, that 13,000 broke a lot of records, but maybe if it had been advertised as well as it could have been, maybe they could have got 35,000 at the SCG. Um, And with the Australian TV ratings as well, it's just, they're wonderful ratings, but it's disappointing, as we've said before, that it was on GEM and not on Channel 9, which points to the fact that the ICC sells the rights to whichever TV provider gets them, in this case, Star India. They then on sold them to Channel 9, and Channel 9 can do what they want with them. 
the, the ICC needs to be able to take a, a closer hand in that and say, look, no, we're going to find a way to make sure that it's on the, the preeminent channel. Yeah, good points. And that is the cricket headlines for this episode. In a moment, we're going to dive into episode two of Amazon Prime's The Test. But before that, just a quick announcement that uh, the podcast is taking a break for a couple of weeks. We're always going to do this around the IPL time. So we're going to take a break. So there'll be no new show for the next two weeks. So we'll be back in three weeks with a brand new episode of our regular weekly show. And in that episode, we'll pick up where we left off with the test episode three. So if you haven't go and try and watch Amazon's the test, but you know, we've still got the history pods and everything's still coming, but the weekly show is taking a, a break for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Hopefully I'll get a Bradman one up fairly shortly. So if you did enjoy that first one, if I've left you hanging as I have with men, as he's wondering what happens to Bradman in his first test match, then tune in in a few days and you'll find out. Yeah, does this Bradman bloke go on and become any good? Well, we're all uh, waiting on bated breath. You know, they say the Tiger King's taking over the world, but I think it's Paul Dennett's history pods. Coming up after the break, episode two of The Test. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Menas. I'm with Paul. And we are going through Amazon Prime's The Test week by week. And now we are up to episode two, which centers around Australia's test tour of the United Arab Emirates in 2018, where they took on Pakistan. What did you think of it, Paul? I enjoyed it. Uh, Was it? Uh, strange in, in some ways how much focus they gave to that series because it seems like a long time ago all the ads for the test were focusing on the Ashes especially and a little bit of the World Cup. So I'm a bit surprised that we're, we're now all the way through the second episode and we haven't even yet had the Australia versus India home series. So I think that this one I, I really enjoyed it, but maybe it's more one for the, the hardcore fans, maybe as far as people who aren't that interested in cricket they might have not enjoyed this one as much as maybe some of the ones to come. So as we discussed, I think in the last episode, you know, they, they do use a lot of, you know, classic devices, you know, filmmaking devices to keep the viewer interested. So this one starts with Tim Payne about to sort of save the first test against Pakistan and then it cuts away and we get into Tim Payne and Justin Langer talking about how hard the task is of playing in UAE against Pakistan and they're kind of just setting up the point of, um, you know, how hard it is and that Justin Langer's building a team. Yeah, and as with all the episodes, well, the first episode in this that I've watched, it confirms to me that I'm very happy that Justin Langer is the coach. His passion, his determination, his intelligence, and as I said last time, he sometimes goes a little bit overboard, uh, but I'd rather a coach that does that than someone who is, you know, a bit laissez-faire and a bit too cool for school. I love the fact that Langer is so desperately passionate about it all. I have a few things that maybe I would question about the way that he's tactical decisions that came across in that in that show um i remember him talking at the start how you know we've got six hours and he's really emphasizing that you've got to be patient unless it's in your hitting zone then just drop it at your feet and i don't know if that's the best advice for someone like say aaron finch later on when aaron finch was talking about when he got some runs in the first test match how he felt that one stage oh i really could take the spinner on and then he thought oh no i better not I tend to think that probably he would have been better off playing his natural game and taking the spinner on. So, yeah, some interesting ways that Langer's tactics came through, but, yeah, his passion and his 
he's, he's certainly the right person for the job. Yeah, I liked where JL was talking about building a team and, and Marnus Labashain was around. And at the time, he was a bit of a nobody. And, and a lot of people were actually questioning why he was playing ahead of Glenn Maxwell in the side. And all these questions were bubbling around. Uh, and, and, you know, knowing what happens, what transpires about his rise to becoming such a good player. I think just having that there is quite interesting. Our old mate Pete Lawler starts to describe the heat over there. And I enjoyed the way they tried to show you and and deliver what it was like playing in those oppressive conditions. I I I thought it did give you a sort of a feeling, a little bit of what it might be like. And then they sort of um, just threw Marnus in there at the end saying, oh, yeah, but I'm a Queenslander. I don't mind. Uh, So I, I thought it was good. Yeah, I agree with that. And it was just it, the whole time, every time Manus Labashain appeared, I just kept on thinking, wow. Uh, I, I, I thought it was wrong that he was picked on that tour. And it's to Justin Langer's everlasting credit that I think he was one of the main cheerleaders for him getting into the Australian side. So if he does nothing else as coach, the fact that he's now fostered this guy who's being talked about as possibly the best batsman in the world. What a remarkable rise. And he always comes across as so likeable when they, they announce the, um, later on with the, the players who've been picked to make their debut and everyone's clapping. And then when his name comes out, he starts clapping and then realises, oh, I shouldn't be clapping my own name. He's just, I just find it very endearing. It's fun to watch him. He's very endearing. Uh, so there was a few things in the training and the leading up that stood out to me. JL talking about fitness, saying that uh, he doesn't want people to be fit to tick a box. He wants it because it'll give them advantage over opposition. If they're the fit, if Australia's the fittest team in the world, then they'll have a slight advantage. So that made sense. Do you think that's a bit of a, a slight on the, the culture that Darren Lehman had, had left that I would have thought that with Australia's professionalism, it should almost be taken as read that we have the fittest team. So it's great that Langer was doing this, but surprising that he needed to. Yeah, I think there are some whispers around again that maybe fitness standards were different under Darren Lehman. Uh, we're talking, though, about, I guess, because there's no way Lehman would have ignored fitness, but we're saying, no. you know, JL would have been like, no, 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 I don't want you to just be fit. I want you to be the fittest you can be all the time. Exactly, yeah, and that's how it should be. Yeah, but the other things that stood out to me were little different exercises they were doing. There was one where both players were sort of bent over facing each other and the guy would say, touch your, you know, touch your shoulders, touch your hips. And then they would do something. You had to grab the ball, the thing in the middle. I thought that was quite an interesting drill because now whenever I watched the Aussies training, it all looks pretty boring, but that actually looked like something would sort of help your fast twitch muscles uh, develop. The other one was, and this caused a bit of a fracas on the show was where Justin Langer put in a thing where if you got out in the nets, every batsman had to swap nets and he was doing that to try and you know, make people value their wicket more. And, you know, Usman Khawaja was vocal on the show of not, not liking that at all. What did you think about that whole thing? I thought it was probably the most compelling moment of the episode after they had that session. And Langer beforehand said he knew how much the, the players didn't like it. Then he asked for feedback and um, Khawaja very bru- abruptly and, brunt- and bluntly told him that he didn't think it was a good idea. And Langer didn't really like hearing that. And it was a, it was a good confrontation. I think it's the sort of confrontation that needs to exist in, in, in top-level sport. On the one hand, you've got a player like um, Kawaja who can sort of say, oh, you know, if I was him, I would have said, what proof do you have that this works? What proof do you have that this is going to make us value our wickets more? 
Um, instead, all you're doing is, is disrupting my preparation. And, and, and as he sort of said, I'm playing test cricket. I, he would have been entitled to say, oh, well, I'm going to come up tomorrow. I'm not going to train here. I'm going to go hire some other nets and get some bowlers bowl to me because I want to prepare properly rather than this sort of method that you've developed that may or may not work, to which Langer could have equally replied, mate, 45 minutes. Sometimes you've just got to do stuff that you don't like. And so it's, it's, it was, I thought it was a, a fascinating scene. And uh, in, in a strange sort of way, it made me like both coach and player even more. Yeah, but I also thought it was a, a left field way of trying to simulate that feeling in the net of not just not wanting to get out, by, but being annoyed when you get out, um, you know, like in the same sort of way that you would in the middle, just just trying to sort of, you know, put a circuit breaker in in that collapsing thing that's in all the Aussies, was in all the plays yet. I mean, he said it in the show, like 20 collapses and, you know, we just went through that horrible period. So I didn't mind his attempt at trying to do something different and and, yeah. and trying to push the plays and needle them. Um, yeah, I thought it was very, very interesting. Mm. So then from there we sort of go into a, a team values meeting and I thought this was a good insight because this team values meeting has been sort of talked about and since that, the fact that they had to have this meeting. Uh, but it starts off by Justin Langer joking that he wishes there were more WA players <laughs> in the room. And I actually didn't find that funny I, because, because <laughs> I, I think that, you know, there is this perception that he favours WA players, Cameron Bancroft being a case in point. So I, I, I don't think those jokes suit him well or, or are good for his brand because if he's joking that, he probably actually deep down a little bit feels it. I disagree 100%. I thought it was a good joke and it added to his brand and it confirmed that he has no WA bias. He can joke about it. He, Of course he doesn't have a WA bias. He's so desperate to win. Why would he jeopardise his own chances of succeeding for something as petty as state biases? Now, maybe because he knows the WA players more, there's a potential that he values them more highly than they are. But if you're saying that he's got a choice between a, a WA player and a player from another state and he picks the WA player because he's a proud Western Australian, I, I think that's a nonsensical idea and the fact that he can joke about it shows that. Okay, well, I will throw the Marsh Brothers back at you. No, but I, I think he genuinely you. thinks that they... <laughs> <laughs> um, so the meeting starts off with Tim Payne talking about a chat he had with Steve War about the perception of the team and Steve was saying they sort of came across as a bit arrogant and self-entitled. What do you think, Paul? I think that maybe what Steve Waugh was referring to would have been the old team. And maybe if that chat had occurred before the tour of South Africa, it would have been valuable. I think that this team by now, where we're up to that 2018, I don't think they, they were arrogant. I mean, they didn't have much to be arrogant about, to be quite honest. So I think that they were a humble team and a good team and it's could be proud of maybe the teams a few years before might have been slightly different. And then we went into a, a nice moment, I thought, of this episode, kind of heartwarming. It was sort of around the three debutants that made their test debut in that first test of that series. So we had Finch, Travis Head and Marnus Labuschagne. Got that one right, Jaleesa. But, you know, that led into a nice discussion, Justin Langer talking about when he got his baggy green and yeah, that was nice. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And then they had the presentations and we had uh, Border and Hussey doing the first two presentations. And then they had that little side bit where Travis Head, when he'd had a beer with Lyon a week before, said, look, if I do get picked, I'd like you to be the one that gives me the cap. And Lyon's got, come on, you know. And he said, no, I'm really serious. And then when Nathan Lyon broke down into tears as he was giving the cap, I'm a, 
I'm not necessarily the most sentimental type. My natural reaction to that should have been, oh, come on, mate. But I actually, I was almost crying myself. <laughs> it was, um, I thought it was a really nice moment. And it made me like, um, like Nathan Lyon does play a very straight bat to the media. I think ever since that press conference before the Ashes where he talked about how, you know, maybe they could end a few careers and that backfired massively. I think he's played a very straight bat ever since. So this gave a bit of an insight into him made me really like him. It made me really like um, Travis Head. But I loved Alan Border's reaction that he was standing there watching. And it was like that episode when, you know, in Seinfeld, when Seinfeld's crying, he's like, what's this salty discharge coming from my eyes? He was like, Border had this sort of look on his face. What's, what's Nathan Lyon crying for? Um, <laughs> that's a strange sort of, you know, I don't think Border would have got that. He wasn't angry at it. He just, oh. He's from a tougher school. I mean, when he got his <laughs> test of boo, it was sent to yeah. a box and he opened it by himself. You know, probably at work that day. And they said, put that away. It was thrashed into him. <laughs> but, yeah, that was all nice. I love seeing all the players' families in the photos there. And, uh, you know, I think the joy that families get from seeing, you know, their kids do well in, in, for Australia, you know, I enjoyed that. As you say about Lyon, uh, it was really confronting to see him like that because he's usually so deadpan. But exactly. you know, everyone says behind the scenes he's all about the team. So, um, you know, he just does very well at hiding that from the media. All right, so then we get into the first test. Pakistan won the toss and bat, and the footage does encapsulate the kind of, oh, we've lost the toss on a flat wicket, damn it. One thing that I just wish they had done is they didn't explain why there was no one in the stadium. Now, we know, but if you're not a, an ardent cricket fan... Coronavirus, of course. If you're not an ardent cricket fan, you'd be thinking, how come they're making this out to be such a big deal and yet no one's turning up to watch? They should have explained that Pakistan was playing in a neutral venue and and, you know, the, back in Pakistan, a nation of 200 million people, there would have been uh, millions and millions watching on TV, listening to it on radio and, and, and being very engaged. Yeah, the ground looked good, by the way. I, I don't know uh, the, the ground in Dubai looks good. I'd like to go there one day and watch some cricket. Certainly could get a seat. So one of the things that really I enjoyed about this episode was the shots in the dressing room uh, of the Aussies. I don't know why... It had a different intensity about it, a different feeling than, say, later on in the, the documentary series. I know you haven't got there yet, but I guess it felt like because, you know, the ground's empty and everything, um, it just felt a bit different. And, I like, my favourite bit was when Australia had a collapse in the first innings and Head made a duck, Marnus made a duck, Finch got out quickly and you just had this procession coming in to the dressing room and throwing their bats and I really enjoyed that footage, that sort of peek behind the curtain. Me too. I definitely agree. I also found it interesting with the interview with Finch where he said that he just was so exhausted because he'd been, you know, concentrating so hard that that he was mentally tired and that counted for his wicket. I think that's something that maybe they should look at because... It's a it's a trope of cricket. Like you know, every time you hear Ian Healy talking about it, he's like, you know, you've got half an hour of concentration, of, of high level concentration. You have to ration that out through a day. And Finch must have known that he's done it before, but the occasion was so massive that he didn't, you know, he didn't successfully do that. That that would be something that maybe Langer and the others could learn from to say, okay, well, next time we have a debutant, we have to focus on that because for an experienced player like Finch to blame mental fatigue as a reason for getting out, that's something that they could improve on. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Manus throwing his bat across the room and then saying, I don't want to be the player that gets two ducks and never plays another test. And (laughs) it's funny because of, you know, he's 
now played a lot of tests and scored lots of runs. Wouldn't have been as funny if he had been that player, though. That's actually an interesting point, that sometimes I'm not sure when those sort of talking head moments are being done. Like, you know, some of them look like they're done around about the time of the test match, but some of them look like they might have been done months subsequent. It would be sometimes, it would be interesting if they could actually put the date uh, below hand, below, so that the you know what sense of perspective the player has when they're when they're making these remarks. So in that test match, Australia was set 462 to win in the fourth innings. Everybody assumed Australia would lose. And uh, going into the fifth day, I think Australia had seven wickets in hand um, against Pakistan. And, you know, everybody thought that Australia was going to lose. And, and interesting that Siddharth Shriram, or Shri as he's called, who's the spin bowling coach, for Australia, ex-Indian international, was filmed saying, you know, the pressure's on Pakistan here and switched the, the mental sort of thing of the Australians. Actually, the pressure's not on us. Everyone's expecting you to lose. Everyone's expecting Pakistan to win. So actually, when we come up on this fifth day, they've got more to lose. And, you know, I actually thought that was a really smart thing that Shree said, you know, just to help the Aussies have a positive mindset. And, well, Khawaja played a breathtaking innings. It was nice after they won that Langer referred back to that and said, you know, you predicted it, predicted it all along, mate. You said we were in the better position and you were right. That was that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was a great innings from Kawaja and interesting how he'd said that I he was determined to play his natural game. He, he's used to reverse sweeping and that's what he was going to do. And I remember watching it and thinking, oh, you know, um, it's a brave shot. As Finch said, if he got out playing a reverse sweep, he, the criticism would have been intense. So remarkable innings triumphant innings and tinged with sadness that uh, I sort of thought, okay, he's finally locked down his spot in the Australian time side for a very long time. And here, as we speak now, he's not in the Australian side and, and not even that close to it anymore. Yeah, I agree. And um, you're right. I, uh, exactly, I had exactly the same feelings and same disappointment. Now, um, I found the, in the footage of the dressing room on that last day was insightful to see how up all the the other players were trying to keep the rest of the team sort of up and uh, yeah I just those sort of things you know for everyone to be standing up and cheering it after every session I thought was really interesting Payne said he did not look at the scoreboard or the overs remaining in his whole innings and he batted for hours to help save that game but we should have lost that game I didn't realize Nathan Lyon came in with 12 overs to go we were eight down I mean, that was was the great escape. Yeah, it's funny because I watched every ball of it at the time, but I also got a surprise. I thought, oh, I didn't remember it being quite that close. Yeah, 12 overs to go, we were gone. So, uh, yeah, wonderful victory, a wonderful draw. And we'll, we'll touch on this, but you mentioned how the footage didn't show, in the documentary, it didn't show them celebrating the draw. Now, was that something that you think they excised from the documentary or that they just didn't think was worth showing? I'll tell you in a minute. I just finish up the end of the game because I loved how everybody in the dressing room was just freaking out with nerves and Tim Payne then decides in the last over to start taking two. And they're all just like, what are you doing? You know, I just thought that that shows Tim Payne through and through. Like he's, he's got to the last over. So there's a few easy runs here. I'll just, I'll just take him. I think the first of those was a bit, if you like, one of them was a, a clear jog too, but one of them, he suddenly realised, I think, ooh, this is going to be a really tightly run to, and I'm either going to get run out or 
I'm going to get a single for no reason and expose Lyon. In the end, he managed to get back for two. But I think that one he probably was regretting as he started to run. Yeah, so you asked about the draw before. So in the in the documentary, they showed the team being happy about the draw and they, they did go into how it was a you know great achievement for them to take a draw. And it was kind of the high point of this episode. You know, if you look at the, the story arc of this episode, that draw is, is the high point. But yep. in reality... Tim Payne, and they didn't show this, Tim Payne's walking off the ground and he looks up at his team and he tells them to stop celebrating, settle down. I don't know if you remember, he goes, the arm, stop celebrating. We yeah. don't celebrate a draw like this. And that was conveniently left out of the, the actual episode, but I think it's an important part of the story. Yeah, and I, I can understand where he's coming from. But I, and I remember Michael Vaughan always talking about how in that 2005 Ashes series when Ricky Ponting got that 150 at Manchester and Australia got away with the draw, that he was delighted at seeing the Australians celebrating on the balcony. He said to the rest of the team, when have you ever seen Australia celebrate a draw before? But I don't mind. I mean, it was a a wonderful performance. And I don't think it follows that if you celebrate a draw, it means that Mm. you're then not going to be as keen for a win in future. Yeah, but my point is more around the the decision to leave it out of the test because I think it's a big part of Payne's story. That, you know, while yeah. everybody else is doing one thing, he's one step ahead of everybody. Um, yeah, they should have shown so, it. It's yeah. a good point. And then Jared Whateley ends that by sort of saying that, you know, that test hit the perfect tone of a new era, that sort of gutsy draw. Um, and I do agree with that. It showed character. And that was the thing people wanted to see from the Australian team. It also showed skill. And that one thing that we probably don't reflect on enough is that Pakistan got to bat first both games in this series, which is an enormous advantage in the UAE, and that more more highly credentialed Australian sides have gone there and, and performed much more poorly than this. Maybe if Australia had actually been able to, to win the toss in the second game, you know, they might have won that game. Uh, they, 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 I think it, it shows what a resilient side they are to have played that well, having had uh, Warner and Smith who not not being there and all that went with that. Agree. So then uh, the team moves on to the second test in Abu Dhabi. And uh, that was, uh, again, I'd forgotten that Australia should have really done better in the second test. They had India five for 50 pretty much in their first innings. Did I say India or Pakistan? Might have said India. They had Pakistan. I can't say that. For this particular instant, that would go over well. (laughs) Australia should have won that test match. They had Pakistan five for 50. At one stage, Nathan Lyon took four wickets in six balls, but then they batted well to make 280-odd. Australia was all out for 145. And we saw JL blowing the team up, saying you cannot let teams off the hook when you have them five for 50. Yeah, and again, it's sort of to that battle of how much of it is mental and how much of it is just actually, well, they are the masters of playing in those conditions and we did have to bowl first. The side was missing Smith, it was missing Warner. I would have been picking other players as well. You know, I would have had Maxwell in there and O'Keefe in there rather than, say, Mitchell Marsh and um, John Holland and so. Bring up Mitchell um, Marsh. That's interesting. He was batting at four in this series. This was when he'd scored a couple of tons in the Ashes. He went to South Africa, made 90. And everyone was saying, Mitch Marsh has finally friggin' arrived. Well, he's gone again. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's tough over there, but yeah. Him batting at four doesn't really reflect very well on the strength of the Australian side. So I, I think ultimately it was, it was a pretty commendable performance given all that was said above. And you can you can make too much of, oh, you know, you, you just can't allow sides to get away from those from that situation. We should have nailed them when we had the chance. But sometimes 
you know, they just, they, they played mm, well. Well, look, they did. They, they smashed Australia in the end by over 300 runs. They won. Pakistan wins the series 1-0. And, uh, yeah, as I said, a series Australia might have been able to win had they um, taken advantage of that start. But one thing that stood out to me was at the end of the series and, and they're having their whole team meeting and Langer's there giving the players a bit of a, a touch-up and then you sort of pan around and Alan Border and Brendan Julian are in there as well who are commentating for Fox Sports and it's sort of been obviously invited in and you can start to see BJ, Brendan Julian just in the corner kind of just soaking it up. I, I thought that was quite funny. must be a hard thing um, once you're out of the side to know what to do in terms of, of going to the dressing rooms. I remember some of the... The, the footage in the past of when Mark Taylor's been kind of invited in and telecast the, the celebrations, it's always felt a little bit awkward, especially because he was on the board at the time. And yeah, I think I think Bill Laurie always said that from the day that he retired, he's never st- set foot in a dressing room ever since. And I, I could see why that would be. I case. actually think it works better when Fox Sports sometimes sends someone like Mark Howard into the dressing room yeah. because he can just approach it, not as an ex-player, not you know, it, it doesn't hold any kind of special meaning or memories for him. He's just a kind of journo doing a job going in there. And I think it's probably better received uh, because it's not like oh, he should know better this ex-player. Um, so, yeah, uh, so that that really stuck out for me. Uh, and overall, I enjoyed the episode. Um, he had a real kind of because there's not many crowds over there and, you know, it, it felt really like you're sort of on board with a, a team on tour, like, you know, not at the Australian team. And I really enjoyed all the, the dressing room stuff. I thought we got some good laughs and yeah, good, good episode. Definitely. I watched it and then uh, I watched it last night and then this morning I just decided to watch it again. And I think that's a sign of a, of a good documentary that you can happily watch it again after such a, a short turnaround. I thoroughly enjoyed it as I did with the first one. All right, so uh, we'll be back when we are back with our weekly shows with the episode three of this series, which is Australia hosting India in the home test series. That's a fascinating series, so can't wait for that. We're going to be back with Can't Let It Go in a moment. Before that, I just want to remind you, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. That's A-U-S Cricket Pod. Uh, we're also on TikTok as Cricket Unfiltered. We're on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at A Menas. And Paul, where can they find you on Twitter? The underscore summer underscore game. All right. Back in a moment. And we're almost at the end of this edition of Cricket Unfiltered, but we have to finish with Can't Let It Go, that little bit of cricket news that you cannot let go through to the keeper. Paul, what's been on your mind? Oh, for me, it was just watching Kawaja in that episode. That uh, I mentioned uh, mentioned it earlier in the show, but his eloquence, his passion, and his uh, courage to speak up against Langer, and then that brilliant innings. It just seems very sad that at the moment he is probably someone that wouldn't get picked in an Australian A side. Maybe just about to do so, but I, I hope that we haven't seen the last of him for Australia at Test cricket and. I hope that maybe he and other players can be rejuvenated by this enforced lengthy break from the game. I remember Roger Federer when he won the Australian Open in, in I think it was 2017, after having gone many, many years without having won a Grand Slam. It was almost he had been injured for, for six months and he had no choice but to stay away from the game. And that just, he came back refreshed and re- rejuvenated. I could look at players like Kawaja, maybe Maxwell and others 
who are off the treadmill of endless cricket now and maybe when it all is back to normal, hopefully they can come back and really uh, have a rejuvenated second half of their careers. Yeah, and I guess for me with Kawaja, one thing that sort of came through in, in the show is anything to do with his lack of success is not an attitude thing. Uh, it's actually, you know, he's a bit of a knicker. I mean, he, against good bowling, he's a bit of a knicker outside of stump. I mean, if you look at those series against England and South Africa, that's his weakness. It's not an attitude thing. I mean, yes, we saw how hard he worked on his fitness. We saw what a great team man he was. We, and I also enjoyed his thoughts about the game where he said in that long innings about, you know, the battle is staying in the moment all the time and mm. you know, not thinking about what's past, not thinking about what's ahead and, and just, I thought he gave a really good insight into the mental battle. So I guess what I'm saying is we should change the narrative. He needs to work on his technique, not his attitude. If I'm his coach, hello, Usman. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my, my uh, can't let it go for this week is Shane Warne's old, old uh, son. Or my, I'm not sure if it's his oldest, but Jackson Warne is on TikTok. So go and find Jackson Warne. You can tell he's a troublemaker like his dad. But, <laughs> I mean, there's one great TikTok where Shane Warne's running through how to bowl the flipper. Uh, Jackson Warren's getting it, filming it. And he, uh, yeah, so I think Jackson Warren's worth a follow on TikTok because you know, if you want to learn how to bowl the flipper, I reckon Shane Warren's a pretty good person to learn how to do it from. And a few of the earlier ones where Shane Warren appears, he has that attitude that I think we all have when you, when you encounter a very, very new form of social media. It doesn't feel real and you almost feel like whatever you do on that doesn't count. And so Shane Warren's kind of a bit, bit off script in some of them and probably not as media savvy as he might be on another forum, but he just sort of feels, oh, it's TikTok, whatever, who cares? So, uh, yeah, it um, can be quite entertaining. And just on TikTok, Paul, the, the, the figures coming out, out are now that it's actually the average age is starting to go up on TikTok and that a lot more users in their late 20s and 30s are using it now. And if you go on, even it's changed since sort of Christmas, you know, in the last three months, it's exploded in the older market. So we were there first, quick and unfiltered. Five and a half thousand followers. Yeah, it's, uh, that, that's tended to happen with other platforms as well. When Facebook first became popular in uh, 2007, it was very much the preserve of the young people. And if you'd said in 2007 that in the not too distant future, people in their 60s and 70s would be on Facebook, you would have been laughed at. But that's what it is now. And the young people are you know, not so much on Facebook. It's, it's regarded as an older person's domain. So who knows where TikTok will go? Well, listeners, that's it for this edition of Cricket Unfiltered. Paul, any parting words to the listeners before we take our two-week holiday? Uh, stay safe. Make sure you follow all of the, uh, the the advice of experts. And if you get a chance, please uh, give my history podcast, mini podcasts a go. I hope you enjoy them. I've really enjoyed put, putting them together. Yeah, and I'd just like to say I've really enjoyed getting messages and emails from all the fans all around the world who've been uh, you know, staying safe but also isolated. So you can email in auscricketpod, that's A-U-S cricketpod at gmail.com. And when we start up again in three weeks, we'll have some new emails to read out. So thank you again for listening. Back soon. <laughs>